Okay. So greetings to all. Uh, good evening when you are watching this. This is Abhivadan from Indus Indus Think, and this is the first dialogue for the Indo-Pacific Mobility Forum. But as you know, you uh, I know there are some Indus Think fanboys I know. <laughs> so uh, hello to them. Uh, this is the fourteenth episode of Indus Think season one, and uh, as you have seen in the past few episodes, I've been discussing a lot about culture, music, philosophy. Like the one I have with Raghav Krishna from Rashtram, the one I had with Amrita on Rit and Dharma, and the one I had from the Ukrainian band Goe, of which I'm I'm one of the diehard fans these days. <laughs> so, um, as we engage further, this is a very interesting discussion on geopolitics, international relations, and of course the context of how we see policy from a larger perspective, from a long-run perspective. Because let me put a caveat here: uh, the la- I've written a recent article uh, which I've related more with music. but i would really say that uh, for anyone who has an indic approach to things or an indic outlook towards things who actually will, you know seeks something in the indian or bharatiya civilization they should more worry about evolution rather than revi- survival or revival because both of them will happen eventually because there is a, some consciousness already and that is something which is a challenge for all civilizations we are not so special about it okay every civilization has so once we realize that we are also having that same challenge we will be very much re- reasonable to act upon so with this i start this discussion with richard you know richard if you don't know let me introduce for the audience um he's a policy thinker he's a policy analyst um the my first episode with richard and karthike which actually went pretty well was on decoloniality in indian foreign policy and if you know uh, he very much critiques about the way decoloniality works and the way uh, you know a reformist approach is needed especially in uh, decolonized countries like india and others so um in the past we must have seen a discussion we had on indian civilization and what actually is the indian civilization um many panelists gave various examples and so does so did richard so um as you see on the title on youtube what is the title the title is india the anglo-saxon and the indo-pacific and why it is the title at the end of the day uh the title is there because the larger question which we are asking to everyone is what is the end goal or what is the cyclic effect of the relationship between india and the anglosphere that's a simple question because of the simple reason that even if there has been something which could be considered as a larger than life in quotes thing uh there are still those cracks and fault lines which exist and those fault lines are rarely addressed often they're just overlooked maybe to say that this is something destined and all of that uh seems seems more monotheistic to me and not pantheistic and it comes to diplomacy and cooperation if you are friendly why can't you be pantheistic challenge in all sorts have different orientations why do you have the monotheistic interpretation or monopolistic or monosonic interpretation so have something unique and that's something which is a problem for the india and anglosphere relation at the end of the day and i'm not talking about only the us here i have very strict views on the united states and i still pose though i still still pose a position that uh the us has created a great hollow in the global order in its own way by its own acts intentionally as well as inten- unintentionally both of them because uh some reports show they knew about it some show they don't so we will be discussing about these aspects and what should indo pacific at the end of the day constitute for india if we really have that term called as indo in hindi we on sanskrit i don't know but in hindi we will call as bharat prashant so for the sake of the bharat prashant let us see what bharat actually needs at the end of the day because for the bharat prashant we never see something bharatiya about it it's more it's more uh, 
it's more about washington dc and it's more about the dc think tankers rather than the indian representation so welcome richard namaste and let me begin with the first question and the first question is very direct and very simple now uh, we know that uh, if anything happens in the world the anglosphere has its own reaction and the anglosphere has its own way of seeing things but uh, uh, whenever the question of autonomy comes in we actually lack that um, you know we we don't have a unique response per se or sometimes okay fine people give this excuse that you know what uh, you are having this hard power cooperation and so so forth that's the thing so let me give an example to what it means if anyone would have read the media interactions and the way uh the media response to the quad summit has been i'm not meaning may naming any english media i'm not interested to do that the mainstream one and even in india for that matter let's start with india only i who cares about guardian and others they will do what they will do i mean uh, ironically even in the us media i remember that when biden and modi met there was not a single important interaction between them so that is something which did not happen unfortunately but that's a different question uh what was disappointing for me in the quad summit was a the we all know shared values don't matter we all know the aspect of economic cooperation is again not going to work unless you have a strategic agenda which is infrastructure centric challenging the bri you did not discuss that fine you don't need to name china but you can still do it again that's a different question and then uh, so the own the, the larger option which i see for cooperation and again uh, somebody should not tell me indian diaspora is the reason we are cooperating because again that's a different question i mean the indian diaspora went to the us for the first place because of many reasons so let's not make the diaspora here so um but diaspora is not the reason the basic econ- knowledge economy is not the reason i don't even think social media and all of that technology related is the reason because even in that i think we can do better we just not we are just not starting to do i think the coup app came late so again india's fault it is completely not the us why did not you create an alternative to netflix so that's not the netflix or the us is problem it's india's problem fine uh, so let's leave the soft power baggage completely the influence of the soft part let's get the hard part and let me put this first question only in that perspective because of the simple reason that this is a big i don't know myth or something which is an assumption in the security circle that indo us cooperation is largely based on those shared values of hard power cooperation let me be blunt on that that is something which i find again people can disagree with me people can say oh no you're wrong you have a naive understanding i have no problem with that people can assume that and that is perfectly fine it is very democratic to do so if you are thinking like that so i don't care i mean this is not my problem yeah if of course if anything unique is to be added there i will very much await the uh, comments on social media but that's another question except i don't know so um, in the quad summit modi had an interaction with the vice president kamala harris uh many of the media people must have reported that thing that kamala harris was saying about democracy sermon so everyone will say are ye to anglosphere ki adat hai the anglosphere does it every day with us and the new york times and the washington post all of that will come again memes will become fine theek hai i understand since 2014 you have been battling with them you have been challenging them very good and you have been also mocking the bbc very good do it i have no problem this is your imperative to do so and i mean bbc does it why don't you <laughs> so democratic right to do it now but the problem with that is that you are only focusing on mockery and not you are actually getting into the right problem and the right problem is which i tried to diagnose was that that the the motto of cooperation doesn't seem to be energetic it seems to be more reconciliatory and superficial and that is where a larger question looms in for india security imperatives 
US is a different question. They will handle their own. The Pentagon is capable to do so. But uh, uh, let's 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 to more focus about India's security cooperation in the Indo-Pacific. Because at the end of the day, the Indo-Pacific is Indian, and it has to be India-centric. It's not China-centric. Uh, we all know that the Asia-Pacific construct was what? It was more of a reconciliatory construct to just add Myanmar into the you know the commercial sector. I still. Uh, whenever I uh, see the history of law firms in India or any commercial firm in India, I don't see India too much being active there. I see Singapore, South Korea, Japan, Indonesia, Myanmar, all of these countries active, but it's like just lost. So uh, that is something which, with the Asia Pacific, I've not seen commonly with India. That India being a very important participant to it. It's more like China is the leader, and you know what? Japan has its own technology relationship with China in many ways. Like, fine, you have cooperation and so so forth. So, Asia Pacific is the Chinese construct plus the ASEAN construct. Where we know the South Asia, Southeast Asian countries are very fragile in their own political inclinations. But Indo-Pacific is it is India-centric, and that is my request that people understand that it should be India-centric if it is Indo-Pacific, and it should be Indo-Pacific. It's a good idea, per se. Thanks to Shinzo Abe for doing that at the first place in 2007. How do you see the whole? Uh, the whole the whole development of this construct from a security point of view because that is the larger question um, because uh, what concerns me more that theek hai let us let, let us assume for a while that the anglosphere would say and I, I may ask another question on this so i'm not elaborating more on this because we can have a better discussion on that let us assume that the anglosphere is saying we can try to control our soft power elites i'm already saying they will never be able to do because they're of their own misdeeds and uh, i can actually give examples in the further question so let's not talk about it much here but even if that's the case why it is that uh, india has not been able to budget its own security conundrums and of course a follow up question will come in as you elaborate so. all right so this uh, transition as you mentioned uh, away from a conception of asia pacific which i feel has been very um much used in the commercial and financial sectors that asia pacific was basically a euphemism that uh, that white expats in hong kong and singapore or uh, or australia uh, as a nation could be used by the west to manage the asian region so that you know just like the east india company would send uh, you know uh, its uh, its best and brightest to the orient and then they would manage the the company affairs there uh the asia pacific uh, uh convention when i think of asia pacific i don't think of security i don't think of geopolitics i think of the asia pacific headquarters of facebook and google and hsbc and standard chartered which are all outposts of the west in this region in hong kong in singapore in uh, sydney now this new concept of indo-pacific what does it mean it's not asia pacific plus india because it's not really about india what it actually means you know and it's very easy for us unfortunately uh, in superficial analysis to feel warm inside oh they're including us you know they even rebranded it for indians you know and, oh they, they want to look after us take us under their protective wing no what it actually means is the indian ocean plus the pacific ocean so it's about naval supremacy that these countries you know have a strong security interest in the region extending from east africa so which is uh one end of the indian ocean 
to Indonesia, Australia, New Zealand, and then beyond to French Polynesia, to Oceania. Now, that is what the true meaning of Indo-Pacific is. About naval security, about looking after international trade and shipping, about pushing uh, the interests of the U.S. of the uh, of the AUKUS alliance, as it's now called, the Australia, UK, and U.S. Uh, strategic uh, partnership, or of the Quad, which is uh, uh, the U.S., Australia, Japan, and India. Now, all of these partnerships. Uh, they're only as good as they are useful to individual countries. Now, at the moment, they're being used by certain countries uh, which have uh, a fear of uh, China supplanting them as the uh, dominant provider of naval security for shipping routes in this region. Uh, whereas India, which you know has been part of the Quad, has not really shaped its agenda much. India doesn't have, at the moment, much of a naval rivalry with uh, China because we have a hot border with them. We have a physical border, terrestrial border uh, in Tibet, uh, between India and Tibet, uh, which is frequently seeing skirmishes, frequently seeing bloodshed, and is an active border. So despite this, it's disappointing that the Quad has not included any actual Indian security interests, such as the Indo-Tibetan border, such as Chinese claims on Arunachal Pradesh, or on Sikkim, uh, or on, uh, uh, on uh, the Ladakh Union Territory. Uh, in addition, there's the sense of jubilation among some policy uh, intellectuals and think tankers in India or of Indian origin, that you know, it's it's a great achievement that we're included in this in the first place. They could have done it without us. Well, essentially, they are doing it without us, and we're just tagging along because if we're not shaping the uh, the agenda, then what are we? Are we just there to fill the numbers? That yes, you know, we have a, an army of one million uh, troops. Are they just cannon fodder to be thrown into the meat grinder in uh, in Tibet? While meanwhile. If things get heated between the US and China, they will take steps to de-escalate it and find an elegant solution, but they won't come to our rescue if our border gets heated up with uh, the People's Liberation Army of China. So that's important to recognize. And I feel that uh, much of the discourse around the Quad or uh, India's relationship with not just the US, but the Anglosphere as a wider uh, community is, uh, is informed and influenced by the Anglophilic tendencies of our elite. That because Indian policymakers, think tankers, uh, bureaucrats, diplomats feel culturally comfortable and can relate to the Anglo-Saxon world, they at some level subconsciously actually do believe the rhetoric about shared values or uh, shared mentalities. Uh, and that's, that's quite 
uh, a weak point of uh, of Indian foreign policy because it gives power to these other uh, countries and not just to the the state organs that non-state actors so media outlets in these countries act as if they have a veto over indian policy making because we pay attention to them because we show that uh, we are sensitive to their concerns we're sensitive to our reputation instead of embracing the the reputation so other countries of the power level of india uh, if they are criticized by the western media they take it as a badge of honor they say yes you know yes we are becoming autocratic that's a good thing because it means we're standing up for ourselves you know yes you know our you know president our prime minister he is a monster that's why we voted for him you know the fact that he's uh antagonizing you just makes him look uh, stronger to us you know that's what russians think that's what uh, uh, the chinese think and uh, that's something that maybe we should consider as well because there there are examples of other countries that because of historical and cultural reasons feel a sense of shame and inferiority at the elite level at the policy making level and are thus hypersensitive to this sense of belonging and they need approval they need validation they need to be uh mollycoddled and told that you know they did a good job they need pats on the on the head uh th- this an- another country that has this experience is greece that greece like india it's an ancient civilization it experienced uh, four or five centuries of turkish rule of islamization it then uh, overthrew it became a modern state but was still managed more or less by the west uh, uh and had a strong tendency from independence to have to prove to the west that it belonged among them that uh, it wasn't uh, defined by its uh, ottoman past or by uh, its orthodox christianity which is you know, eastern or its byzantine legacy which were all seen as non-western that to be western meant to be protestant or catholic not orthodox and definitely not you know ottoman and, and muslim and this uh, debate really came to the fore in the 1970s and 80s in Greece as it was applying for membership to what was then called the European Economic Community what's now the European Union so uh, uh, Konstantin Karamanlis the prime minister at the time he he gave a sa- famous speech saying oh we belong to the west that was his uh, his election slogan we belong to the west he would say i must repeat myself politically defensively economically culturally speaking greece belongs to the west of course we belong to the west greece be it traditionally or because of interests belongs to the western world meanwhile the leader of the opposition uh, andreas papandreou had a one line response to this impassioned speech and that is i would prefer that greece belong to the greeks which says it all <laughs> that and it's the same there are many people who think that because you know 5% of indians you know uh, speak english that we belong to the anglosphere we be, you know our natural partners are the uk the us australia new zealand that because we have a diaspora there because of linguistic and economic reasons that these are our national uh, nat- natural partners but no india doesn't belong to the west doesn't belong to uh, the anglosphere doesn't belong to anyone that's the whole point of independence india belongs to indians and you know it's indians who should decide what their interests are what are 
India's strategic goals for the long term as a nation, as a civilization? Where do we see ourselves? Where do we want to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now? And then it's the state's job to embrace whatever tool is needed to reach those goals. At the moment, we don't set goals for ourselves. We don't have a common uh, national vision, a shared vision, a shared unifying ideology. Uh, and we haven't been able to develop strategic thinking. And this lack of strategic thinking, this lack of a results-based, goal-oriented goal uh, approach to statecraft is damaging us. Because then all we're doing is maintaining the status quo or hoping for the best and trying to get along with everyone and uh, win goodwill, you know, collect good boy points. And we think that, oh, when you collect enough good boy points, we'll be granted the seat on the UN Security Council that we deserve. Nobody deserves a seat on the UN Security Council. How did it come into being that the countries that won the Second World War gave themselves permanent seats uh, and they're not going to give it up and they're not going to dilute it? That even this dream that has been sold to us that, uh, oh, we're going to become a superpower and uh, we'll have a uh, seat, a permanent seat on the Security Council at the UN, the proposals for reform of the UN Security Council will not give new members, even if they're made permanent, even if countries like India or Brazil are given permanent seats uh, on the Security Council, we won't be given veto power. Veto power will stay with the original side. So then what's the point? Then it's just, yeah, our goal is just validation. We want a meaningless gesture and we're very happy for it. And we spend so much energy pursuing a worthless goal. A more meaningful goal will be one that uh, benefits the people over the long term. And uh, just to complete the point ab about uh, you know Greece and its fixation with belonging to the West, or you know India and its fixation with belonging to the Anglosphere, that uh, the uh, the intellectual Sotiris Mitralexis he wrote that this uh, dilemma and fixation with belonging to the West engenders obstacles for Greece's flourishing, prosperity, and balance. Because this fixation in many different forms on this question turns the country into a never-ending group therapy session without catharsis, without resolution, that you know, we're just using foreign policy to enact our own inferiority complex instead of using foreign policy to boldly pursue our goals. And that's not how... Uh, strong power, a sovereign power, should be behaving. I completely understand the reflection which is coming, but yeah, I sympathize in that. So anyways, uh, maybe you can tilt a little bit to your left and then maybe we can manage it out, but yeah, no issues. So um, you made some very interesting points about the autonomy of Greece, and uh, on that, I would like to add something. And to add something is this that uh, yes uh, there is a problem of inferiority complex and uh, i think there is the key why we behave like that and again um i would like to point out to three important events in geopolitics which are very significant in their own right uh, one from 2020 two from 2021 the first one which i would like to talk about is the abraham accords the second one is the afghanistan debacle kind of a strategic loss for the US, even if nobody admits it, even if people say, well, $2 trillion were wasted in 20 years, not exactly it, it were they were paid, of course, they were 
you know there's some corruption around but i'm not getting on that because i remember one defense analyst saying it and i'm quoting him very popular defense analyst known for his jokes and so forth that uh, uh, america is actually based on american economy is based on war without that it just cannot go ahead that's something which is a problem because even now the military industrial complex is silent and since the military industrial complex is silent for a while we just never know when it will blow up where it will go and where it will start its waging wars and all of that and that's the, that's the problem um a larger problem with the american narrative is that they have a linear consequential policy they just want everything from one destination to one destination and uh, how far they wish to proceed with it they just do not realize that it does not have a scope which is productive enough even for their people let's be honest because uh, uh due to the neoliberal economy policies and again i'm not against free market i am against uh, stopping innovation which of course their companies and their actors do very deliberately i mean i can give examples but i'm not getting on that to deviate from the topic considering our time constraints but that's the problem uh, their infrastructure is worse the public infrastructure their inflation is worse their financial reserves are at a problem their npa is a big so i think even america should ask what actually their problems are not recognizing them or so of course we'll get on the discussion on culture and how uh, their postmodernism blah 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 creates conflict economy but let us have a deeper discussion on that afterwards not now so let me get on the three examples first the first one i said abraham accords and the second one i said afghanistan and third one i did not mention the third one actually is uh, um, related to aukus now you mentioned about aukus a little bit so let me describe about why i am asking for these three to in this dialogue now afghanistan happened you know a nation state was kind of created then you know there was pres there were presidencies of course we know that uh, uh, ashraf ghani was not popular his election was a farce amrullah saleh was but that's a different question and uh, uh, you know the northern alliance got its way in 1919 2001 somehow and they basically with the us cooperation got their nation state but in 2021 august just near our independence day let's say the 15th of august legally independence day um the problem that we had was that uh, Afga- uh, the taliban campaign succeeded they captured kabul and then of course um that was a time when india was the president of the unsc for one month as a non permanent member elected for two years now ironically uh, ambassador trimurthy gives two po- makes two points for taliban's legitimacy and the first point is that women and uh, minorities must be protected you should respect them at the end of the day that's the first condition and the second condition of course is that uh, since this is being asked um the second condition is simply since this since this is being asked you have to ensure that your territory does not manufacture terrorism it's like asking pakistan please stop your terrorism but we know that isi and pakistan army will not agree to it ironically imran khan is making a joke of pakistan and that's a big joke of them sir but fine the world can laugh on that and uh, that's something which is very fun to see i i remember a very interesting incident i think it has recently happened that uh, uh, the isi chief has not been promoted and they, uh, this is something which uh, they are frustrated right now and everybody is making memes on general affairs i mean that everybody is saying aag lag rahi to mujhe aage types now ulta ho raha hai jaise ko taisa enjoy that so uh, that's a cracker of laughter but okay so uh, i think there what i find interesting weird is 
यू कैन ब्लेम यूपीए गवर्नमेंट एंड मनमोहन सिंह फॉर दिस ओके फाइन ठीक है आपने वहां पे संसद बना दी यू मेड अ पार्लियामेंट एंड यू नो व्हाट यू हैड सम यू सो कॉल्ड यू हैड सम एलिजेंस इंडिया हैड अ नेचुरल एलिजेंस टू द अफगान पीपल नॉट जस्ट बिकॉज़ गांधार एंड इंडिक कल्चर एंड बुद्धिज्म बट आल्सो बिकॉज़ ऑफ द रियलिस्टिक कंसीडरेशंस इवन इन दीस 20 इयर्स दे हैव नोन यू देयर वर कल्चरल इंटरेक्शंस विद अफगानीज इन द इंडियन डिप्लोमेट्स एज वेल एज इंडियन पीपल आई मीन इट इज ट्रू I remember uh, in uh, one moot court organized by my organization recently in January or February uh, we had judges who were uh, who who were uh, I mean law academics passed out from masters and they were afghan women who were actually judging as moot court judges so I know that afghans are really there and that's a different question about their mobility and cooperation that's already gone because of the security status in Afghanistan it's a conflict economy of its own way my problem with that was that of course it was bound to happen the us intelligence agencies known had known why is it that india since 2014 and even beyond 2014 because 7 years is a long time for you you never even thought of budging around then changing a bit to see where your assets were i don't know if there were i am not assured that there were there might be the raw knows it i don't know i don't know about it and even if i would know i would not declassify <laughs> but even if let's assume they had very incompetent assets they had because what we see is that uh, they are much acting like a pseudo client state for the us by saying okay so i remember a statement which was published you know it's like a, a sarkari sutra or government sources say so it was like that which was like india and us collectively saying to pakistan and china government sources say privately or whatsoever publish in the media i i can't share the link right now but uh, people can google it uh, they state that okay india and us say to pakistan and china you want taliban as islamic emirate of afghanistan fine just ensure these 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 points you will ensure democracy in uh, afghanistan ironically we know those countries want and practically speaking uh, that's not their imperative to do either because of various issues we will discuss bri afterward but not now so uh, i think the larger problem here with india is you are strategically very clueless again the same cassette tape we have been talking about from the first indus think episode i'm sorry to do that but we have been seeing this and uh, i don't know what effect will it have but uh, what effect can it have is for future strategic thinkers and future legal as well as policy thinkers to think about it in a very prospective sense because uh, the problem with the anglosphere is you can't have that berlin wall moment all over again please come out of that romance please come out of that uh, regan uh, uh, that regan speech for gorbachev the mr gorbachev let's break the borders blah 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 bhaiya theek hai wo samay samapt ho chuka hai you can also read the trump speech in poland what he talked about uh, europe but again um, that can be motivating but it's not practical enough so that's a different question so that is one point afghanistan it india was very uh, clueless again second was aukus france of course was uh, kind of very disappointed by the way aukus became a reality and uh, they were disappointed and uh, of course there were social economic and other concerns per se but uh, but but why is it that india is not acting in a proactive manner because let me tell you i don't know if the katsa sanctions will be applied on india and let let me let me say even bruno makai said it on twitter i remember let that happen even <laughs> let that happen for once because hona hi hai 
because they are clueless at the Wendy Sherman and all of those. They don't know what they're doing particularly. So let that happen. Because uh, I just got a statement recently. They're saying that uh, S400 is a S400 is dangerous, so you should not have it. <laughs> I mean, dangerous. So you also then uh, stop manufacturing weapons. They're dangerous for the whole world. Simple. Remove your ICBMs. Can you do it? No. So just, uh, you know, uh, I think that's a very weird irony for the US Deputy Secretary of State to state that. Nevertheless, that's the case. So that's the case. Unfortunately, India was again clueless. It more seems to us that despite India's campaign to let COVID shield be recognized in Europe and other countries, despite India's own way of stating that, you know, what the TRIPS waiver issue, you know it very well, it was some months before that, you know, for intellectual property rights in WTO that, you know what, you just can't have certain IP waivers for particular uh, substances which were critical in making vaccines. India tried to handle and Blinken finally said, okay, we will bulge. But I don't know what's the progress so far. Maybe people have forgotten about it. But that is still not resembling around, but more of a reconciliatory path by assuming in a default manner that, yes, that is the future. My point is not that whether you want cooperation or not, that's a different baggage altogether. It is it's a strategic risk. I mean, 10 years after, maybe the US changes, who knows? Maybe they stop their wokeism. Maybe they change their liberal model. Who knows? I don't know. I can't guarantee about it. But we don't know. And since we don't know, we have to be prepared with multiple risks. That is how the war games happen. That is how uh, risk games are understood. That is something which India did not. And the last one, which is uh, Abraham Accords, to make it short. Uh, the Abraham Accords came in. Uh, it was a phenomenal achievement for the Middle Eastern countries, according to me. Not because not I'm going to say, I'm not going to say, oh, fine, it was some holy achievement on former President Maga King Donald Trump. I'm not going to say that. But what I'm going to say, because I know there are many MAGA lovers in India, and but it's fine, you can love Donald Trump. I mean, he's an entrepreneur, I, and I support entrepreneurs, and I don't care about that. So, okay, uh, entrepreneur, hai, tarif kariye, puri kariye. but point is, it, it is not just about Donald Trump. The Abraham Accords has a history, whether it is cooperation between Israel and UAE. Uh, I think uh, I think former Prime Minister Rabin wanted cooperation with the UAE Crown Prince. And then, of course, things went bad. He was assassinated. And as people state, and even now, if you see the two-state solution problem with Palestine, the Arab League is bulging around. Even last year, it stated that on this issue of Palestine, two-state solution is okay, as Mohammed bin Salman says always. But uh, still, they want more constructive economic cooperation. They don't want to get into this identity politics thing. They don't want to get into this conflict economy thing anymore. It doesn't suit them. It doesn't matter. I mean, the UNHRC might come up with any frivolous statement against anyone. The credibility of international human rights law, as I always am being very critical of international human rights law, not because of human rights as a concept, but what actually has become now. Uh, a Leviathan, according to the Western Hopshian language. So uh, since that has happened, it has caused a lot of problems. And that is where something I'm concerned as to where India will be acting in a strategic manner, because I don't see anything for now. Maybe they had some military exercises. Yes, I agree. I remember Minister Jashankar going to Saudi Arabia frequently, UAE frequently. I agree that they are doing something. I'm not saying disclose, but it doesn't indicate a, a roadmap for anything. I mean, uh, so so what do you think of these three incidents? Uh, people would very harshly say incompetency. I say partial incompetency and partial lack of strategic outlook at a much institutional level. And lastly, 
lack of feedback also lack of acceptance or even consideration of feedback so the acceptance mat consider to kal do you consider bhi nahi karte consideration is also not there so now i have uh, i have kind of rested my case not as a counselor not a counselor but yeah as a as whatever so <laughs> what do you think so uh, i wouldn't call it incompetence it's more lack of imagination and lack of uh, of long term strategic thinking the if we look at the first example that's uh, the us withdrawal from from afghanistan uh it was done in a chaotic manner by the us it was done in a way that uh, betrayed not just their partners within the afghan democratic uh, government but also their own nato allies who they had dragged in to help manage uh the occupation and then uh, well the invasion the occupation and nation building efforts in afghanistan after the taliban uh and uh, they were all left to fend for themselves the uk ambassador was sitting at kabul airport coordinating stamping visas himself now this is not uh an experience that fills it, their own allies with confidence about us reliability let alone the, let's say strategic partners if that's what india wants to be because uh let's face it india is not going to be uh, a us ally uh because an alliance is one of mutual aid mutual assistance there's no scenario even if you know we signed an alliance there's no scenario in which american troops are going to come and defend indian sovereignty at the border with uh, with uh, tibet or the border with pakistan to the west Uh, all they'll do is use their influence as an ally to de-escalate the situation and make us compromise and make us adjust and find some sort of suboptimal solution for us and then call themselves peacemakers so there's no scenario in which the us will ever become a treaty ally of india's uh and the us being a superpower the way it interprets its alliances is that its allies come to the us's defense uh and in return those allies so called allies the actually client states become captive markets for us military and industrial uh exports and this ties in very well to what you mentioned uh, the the second point aukus so this security partnership between australia the uk and us which came as a surprise to many uh in september 2021 wherein france was on the verge of announcing a 65 million a billion 65 billion euro submarine deal with the with the australians uh and at the last moment literally with hours to go before the initial announcement australia pulled out of the deal which it had negotiated they had requested france who are leaders in nuclear submarine technology to create special diesel uh subs for the uh for Australia they turned around with hours to go before the announcement of this deal without informing France that they had cancelled this order and would instead buy nuclear submarines from the United States and this is exactly the conception of alliance that the US has with uh with these countries that uh, you come under this uh, uh protective shield but in return you have to buy american products you know what were you thinking of buying french products 
Uh, and this you know, is important not just because it has now created a parallel structure in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, so earlier there was the quad, everyone uh, in India was patting themselves on the back. Oh, India's relevant. India's a regional power. It's been included in this quad with uh, the US, Australia, and Japan. For Indo-Pacific security, that means we're relevant. Now there's a parallel one of much closer Anglosphere allies. There's no Japan, there's no India, there's no France. Uh, even though France, you know, people don't realize this, but France is not just metropolitan France uh, on the continent of Europe. Fra French territory extends to South America, there's French Guyana. It extends to the Arctic, it extends to the Indian Ocean, it extends to the Pacific. They have extensive territories in the Pacific. They have uh, millions of citizens. Uh, across the world outside of Europe. So, of course, they are a relevant security player in this region. And to have antagonized them in such an underhanded way has reinforced you know, what people in France, what the French policymaking elite have believed for 70 years that the Anglosphere can't be trusted. Charles de Gaulle used to say this. Uh, that's why he opposed the United Kingdom joining the European Economic Community. He thought they would be internal saboteurs. That's why he withdrew France from the NATO command structure. That's why uh, France uh, developed its own independent nuclear deterrent so that it wouldn't be uh, dependent on the US or UK. And they were right to do so. In the past few years, uh, President Emmanuel Macron has also expressed his frustration with uh, with the UK uh, as uh, a spoiler within the European Union. Thankfully, they have now left. Uh, he's expressed his dissatisfaction with Germany, with its risk aversion, which is, if not an Anglo-Saxon country, is a Saxon country, uh, and uh, is informed by that same Protestant ment uh, mentality of austerity and, uh, and uh, uh, ri risk aversion in their case. Uh, and finally, the most vitriol that has been coming out of the French presidency is against the US for exporting its cultural wars, for exporting its woke ideology, uh, its uh, university debates into the culture of France. Uh, and uh, probably it's the strongest criticisms of the Anglosphere media in the past few years have not come from Russia, they haven't come from India, they haven't come from China, they've come from France. They've come from Macron himself, who refused to meet journalists from certain newspapers, who began uh, attacking the coverage that France gets in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, uh, Financial Times. So with this background, for Australia to have canceled this deal, and gotten into bed with its you know, true partners, with its brother and sister countries of the Anglosphere, will only accelerate a process that was already in motion. With Brexit, the UK has left the EU. With Angela Merkel's retirement, it's now going to take weeks or months for a new coalition to be formed in Germany, and then even longer for the new chancellor to build up the kind of credibility uh, he or she needs to uh, lead Europe. That leaves Emmanuel Macron as the uncrowned king of Europe. And he has an election coming up next year. And, you know, he's polling very mediocre, uh, mediocre in the 
uh, opinion polls in the approval ratings. So this is his long-awaited chance to portray himself as this elected monarch who stands up to the Anglosphere, who uh, has an independent foreign policy, who practices strategic autonomy, you know, this, who is above petty domestic squabbles. Just like Charles de Gaulle, you know, currently uh, following the last uh, uh, adoption of a new constitution in France, which was in the 50s, the, the French under Charles de Gaulle abolished their, presidential, uh, their uh, parliamentary republic and replaced it with this new semi-presidential republic, which is essentially an elected monarchy. The people expect the president of France to be someone with gravitas, to be someone who leads the country into the future. Each president is supposed to have their legacy for years to come. That can be through architecture. It can be through scientific achievements. Uh, it can be through high-speed rail. It can be through France's space program, France's uh, nuclear program. Uh, and this is his chance to really portray himself as the leader of Europe. And we're already seeing this, that soon after... Uh, this uh, betrayal, as the French foreign minister called it. He called it a stab in the back. He called it a betrayal. Uh, France has moved very uh, proactively to assert itself as a geopolitical player. Uh, one example is that, uh, that Greece, a fellow NATO member, a fellow European Union member, has been facing aggression by its neighbor Turkey and its historical rival Turkey, its former colonizer Turkey, uh, for years. That uh, the Turkish Air Force violates uh, Greek airspace, uh, the Turkish uh, uh, diplomats make aspersions on uh, Greek territories. And uh, there's also this weaponization. So Erdogan is currently paid by the EU to not let uh, Syrian migrants. Uh, and uh, refugees enter the EU, but uh, this just gives him power to blackmail frontline countries like Greece or Bulgaria by threatening to uh, to send waves of uh, refugees that they can't handle. Now, amidst all of this, the EU and NATO have been useless in defending Greek interests or defending Greek sovereignty because, uh, uh, well, to put it simply, uh, Germany is very sensitive to its relationship with Turkey for various reasons, for internal reasons, there's a large Turkish diaspora in, in Germany, but also for economic reasons that uh, and uh, political perception reasons that uh, they find it convenient to work together to mollify and manage Erdogan in, uh, in Turkey. And if countries like Greece or Bulgaria have to be sacrificed to it, they're seen as lesser Europeans anyway in the German policymaking elite. With this background, France has now signed a historical uh, military alliance with, with Greece, which is unprecedented that, you know, why would two NATO members, two EU members who already tied through so many treaties sign a bilateral treaty? It's because the EU and NATO are, are not fulfilling their purpose. And this gives France a new role. What's also interesting is, why is France so interested in defending Greece all of a sudden? It's because Greece bought military equipment from France. Uh, why is France suddenly so interested in working together with India? Because India bought the Rafale uh, fighter jet from France. And this 
is what makes France a very interesting military supplier, that the nature of the French economy and French society is such that uh, it has one of the highest contributions of government spending to its GDP in the developed world. It has a very strong state-directed focus towards manufacturing, research and development, innovation. And this is especially expressed in uh, military, uh, in the military-industrial complex there. And then finally, they have a highly unionized workforce who can often hold the country to ransom. As a result, France is a very unique country wherein when you buy their, uh, their weaponry, when you buy their military technology, instead of you as the customer being in the inferior position, you're actually in the superior position because you have created so many jobs and you have uh, offered social stability and political stability to that president. As a result, instead of having strings attached, it actually comes with bonuses that all of a sudden France wants to work very closely with you because they hope you'll order more because it's a, a big boost to their prestige, to their economy, to their social stability, and they really start standing up to you. So this is similar to, you know, to Russia or formerly the Soviet Union, that India was a close partner of the Soviet Union and is still a close partner of Russia. As a result, India for many decades was said to have actually enjoyed a veto, uh, well, veto power in the UN Security Council because the Soviet Union slash Russia could be relied upon to always veto any resolution that was explicitly against Indian interests or against Indian territorial sovereignty. Similarly, this is something that one can leverage with France. And in response to the Quad, in response to AUKUS, uh, we're going to see what I jokingly referred to as the pentagram, the unholy alliance of five countries that France has decided to work with over the next few years. And that is, uh, so France, Greece, Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, and India. So these are five countries that France has identified and uh, have a shared interest in containing a specific power, and that's Turkey. That you mentioned, Abhivardhan, that uh, we've had a relatively successful West Asia foreign policy over the last seven years, that uh, we've managed to balance uh, our historic relations with uh, Palestine, along with increased uh, uh, cooperation with, with Israel, without compromising on the Indian state's position that we support Palestinian independence and a two-state solution. In fact, Prime Minister Modi was the first Prime Minister of India to set foot on Palestinian soil and make this commitment as well, that India supports Palestinian independence and has even been awarded the grand color of Palestine, so the highest state honor of Palestine, alongside, and this is alongside historically good relations with Israel. Similarly, we used to have a big problem of uh, Wahhabi funding. So uh, the Saudis used to uh, fund radical preachers, clerics, madrasas within India. Uh, and uh, were historically close to Pakistan. Uh, for example, there's uh, Faisalabad, which is named you know, after King Faisal of, uh, of Saudi Arabia. Uh, now, India has done a fantastic job in weaning away uh, uh, Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates 
from Pakistan towards India. And now we are enjoying very good relations with them as well. Uh, and with that, we're still getting along with our historic partner in that region, which is Iran, who are big rivals with, uh, with uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis. However, this lack of vision that we mentioned, the lack of imagination that we mentioned came out when what happened when the Saudis pulled the plug and the Emiratis pulled the plug on Pakistan, they found a new patron, and that's Turkey. It was Turkey and, uh, and Qatar. What ties Turkey and Qatar? They're uh, supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is you know, a third power. So it's not Shia mullahs in Iran. It's not the Wahhabis and the, the monarchies of the Gulf. This is uh, the historic movement from the far west of, uh, uh, of Asia or from, from Egypt as well. Now, in order to isolate these countries, it's important to identify who uh, has an interest in limiting their power. And that is Greece. It is Egypt. It's Cyprus and Armenia as well. But at the moment, they're not very strong uh, geopolitical players and uh, have uh, both experienced losses to the you know, Turkic forces, uh, be it Turkey itself or Azerbaijan in recent years and decades. But this is something worth watching, that the development of, or the, let's say the rediscovery of French strategic autonomy uh, will be very interesting to see. And uh, earlier this week, uh, there was this fascinating video posted by Macron himself simply saying the dream is possible, which was a one minute, 41 second video of French technological achievements since the Second World War with inspiring corporate music in the back, uh, no text. And then at the end, it just simply said France 2030. Now, that you know, was very cryptic, you know, no context, and we just posted it. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's part of this reimagining of France's place in the international order, in the European Union, in NATO, and in opposition to the Anglosphere and its traditional partners and patronage networks. Great. Since we are talking about Emmanuel Macron, just two things in his honor, and then we go ahead with the next part of this discussion, because I think we have a little bit more to discuss. Actually, we have a lot. But I think we can shorten it up accordingly. First, since you jokingly mentioned Pentagram, I also jokingly did a thing. So I dedicate this meme to both the heads of states. I mean, one of the one of de facto, not the de jure, and second is a de facto. <laughs> so this is a Gaulian relationship <laughs> to the Indo-Pacific. It's kind of a tribute, I give. I really wish that something creative happens, something genuine happens, and I really uh, seek much cooperation. Uh, I have one follow-up question, two follow-up questions on Europe. But before that, uh, since uh, we are talking about Emmanuel Macron, I'd like to share something really interesting. So I think if viewers have not watched it, please uh, vouch on what Richard said. That tweet was something. And I'm just sharing a little bit instance of it so that people can enjoy it. So. Uh, yeah. La France a toujours été à la pointe des recherches concernant l'énergie atomique. Ce cœur artificiel 100% français est un miracle. C'est fait, le train à grande vitesse a été officiellement inauguré aujourd'hui, ce train le plus rapide. 
Au classement de l'alimentation durable, la France est championne du monde. Nouvel avion de combat français, le Rafale. Premier français commandant de bord de l'ISS. L'un des meilleurs appareils de chasse du monde. Notre ambition à tous, c'est d'avoir un jour des hommes sur Mars. Grâce à la 320, pour la première fois, Airbus dépasse Boeing. Et ça, c'est une véritable révolution. Sommes-nous seuls dans l'univers So since France 2030 is something which is an imagined future for Macron, I really wish that it happens. And of course, we also go beyond Mahatmanirbhar to actually think about something. If we really conceive that we are a wishful group, considering that we are not right now, but we maybe we should. So I had one follow-up question, a very simple one, on Angela Merkel and one on the Visegrad group, basically uh, the role of these uh, Visegrad group countries, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and so on. So I mean. Czech, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and you know Italy and all of this, and Poland. Uh, Poland. Uh, yeah. yeah. Poland, yeah. So sorry, yeah. Yes. So um, we know that uh, whenever we talk about the Anglo-Saxon relationship, uh, whenever it comes to interaction, India has, of course, and in Indian Indian communities, let's not say communities, let's say Indian non-state actors as well as Indian state actors, they have been quite bashed or quite being affected by the Anglosphere. And whenever we say Anglo-Saxon, we specifically mean the five eyes alliance countries, the intelligence group countries. And that is the direct way of saying it. Another country... Yeah, not Trinidad, concerns, not Ghana, not India. <laughs> of course, of course, of course, of course, not those. Of course, not those. But okay, so let me spell it out. UK, US, Canada, Australia, maybe Ireland. I don't know. Ireland is not a part of five eyes, but not that much. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they are Irish. Uh, 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 so, not Ireland, but yeah, so that we know. But uh, uh, as relationship with Germany was, of course, at a stake, we don't know which coalition will form the government. Many people are saying the left wing coalition, which is a left wing works for European definitions, not for India, but for them, because for India, it's a different case. <laughs> not going to say about that. But so let's say the left wing coalition forms a government. I'm not talking about them. Uh, uh, what do we do we really see i'm not saying about whether they will form the government or not or there any chances on them but uh i remember a very um i would say since you mentioned about how russians and indians are ridiculed by the west and i'm talking about the anglosphere here that's why i've stopped saying west on twitter i say the anglosphere <laughs> uh, that's good. exactly <laughs> Anyways, so uh, since Anglo-Saxon, the Economist published a caricature showing that you know the German eagle or I don't know falcon. It's I don't know. I don't think eagle, yeah. eagle. Yeah, the uh, eagle is fatigued now and in a very bad position. And uh, you know what? Uh, that liberal responsibility is now shattered. Who will do that in Germany? Who will? Do so uh, uh, do we? Do we really see that? Uh, because you mentioned about uh, there's a void. Do we really see that uh, since Merkel is gone and there's an uncertainty in Germany, although Germany is a robust democracy in its own way, that's a different question altogether. Security-wise and otherwise, it's very robust. 
but uh, does it really affect germany's role and second question let me put on that do we really see the visegrad visegrad groups resilience because uh, i much see that eastern europe has an important role to play to cooperate with india to as starters because my understanding has been and i may be wrong that not just the vondelia commission but even before before her i don't see the eu being very strategic i'm not talking about european countries i'm talking about the european commission particularly and the european mm-hmm. council that they are too different for me uh so what do you think on that just a quick one you can give and then i'll go to the next one all right uh, i think it's to be welcomed any dilution of german power in the european union should be welcomed because over the past few years uh because of the stagnation of italy and the stagnation of france uh the de facto leadership of the european union went to germany purely on the strength of its economic and industrial base however germany is a country that like india doesn't have much political imagination or foreign policy imagination it's a status quoist country they're very happy with what they have and are just trying to tinker with the system to improve their outcomes to improve the infi- efficiency a little bit but not change it that's that's scary you know they don't want a revolution they want an evolution as slow as possible and over the past 20 years so you know both with merkel and her predecessor schroeder germany has been the origin of a lot of the bad ideas within the uh, european union and i'm not talking about you know the obvious one so many people criticize germany for uh, creating or enabling the refugee crisis no not that you know long before that uh, i mean economically that uh, the way in which the eurozone and the european union were manipulated very cynically by german lobbyists and by extension the german government to vassalize and colonize uh, the peripheral member states so countries in eastern and southern europe have been reduced to east india uh, company style uh, colonies that they are only seen as sources of cheap labor so you, you know western european countries suck up all the talent you know from these countries and leave you know an old aging population behind uh, and as a market for finished goods and financial products and this is very unhealthy and it's caused by the euro because the euro is just a rebranded deutsche mark uh and comes with the historical sensitivities that germany has because of its unique history so germans are traumatized by the hyperinflation after world war 1 that they feel oh economic stability inflation is the first step to hitler and you know because of that uh uh we created the conditions for the rise of nazism so inflation must be controlled at all costs so they've stagnated the economy they've stagnated the entire eurozone the entire european union in order to guarantee germany 1% growth per year and then they're very proud oh we we grew our economy by 1% a year what is the economy the economy is manufacturing cars based on coal power uh you know as if it's the 1890s now uh it's still a very uh a very mercantilist way of looking at your uh industrial export strategy and uh, that's why germany is a manufacturing powerhouse you know that competes you know 
uh, with uh, with China and Japan, but it has come at a great cost. And uh, often their policies, while cynical and self-serving, were clothed in morality, where they would tell, and this will be very familiar to, to people in India and in and in Asia and Africa and the Caribbean, they would tell these countries when they complained, when uh, Southern Europeans or Eastern Europeans complained that uh, you're hollowing out our societies, you forcibly deindustrialized us, you took away all our uh, young talent, and then you export your toxic political debates to our countries. Uh, and then you frame it in morality that you people are poor because you're backward and regressive and we're here to civilize you. If only you acted more like us and you would deserve to be rich, but right now you don't deserve it. You're lazy, you don't work, uh, pay your taxes, you have a Mediterranean mentality, you have a Balkan mentality, you have an Eastern mentality, your socialization was during communism, so you're all idiots. Uh, this is what they were told. And that, that you know, when the adults speak, you children should, should be quiet and listen. That, that's how Germany negotiates with other member states. And it causes resentment. And there's great jubilation in many capitals you know, behind the scenes, they won't do it openly, that Merkel is gone and the toxic influence of her party might go away. I mean, there's still a chance that her party, the Christian Democrats, will stay in power and lead what's called the Jamaica coalition. So the black uh, Christian Democrats with the uh, pro-business free Democrats, the yellows and the greens. That's still a possibility. Uh, but what, you know, they're looking forward to is a more uh, equal European Union where it's not dominated by one cultural economic hegemon. And also one which is more open to a better form of European Union being possible. Because the, the German approach was a better world is not possible. This is the best world we can hope for because it works well for Germany. Why would you want anything uh, different? You know, who are you? You're a small country. You're an you know, Eastern country. You know, you're a post-socialist uh, country. You're a Mediterranean country. What do you know? Uh, uh, did you have 1% growth last year? No, you had, you know, 0.3% growth. That makes you stupid. So, yeah, very good. Congratulations, Germany. Thank you. You finally did it. Uh, you demonstrated patience in riding out, you know, uh, Merkel for as long as she wanted to stay. It's a shame uh, you couldn't get rid of her earlier. But uh, all right. <laughs> now, you know, hopefully something better can come out of it. And now you mentioned the Visegrad states. So, so that's uh, Poland, uh, Czechia, Slovakia, and Hungary. Uh, which are called the V4, which is a, a grouping of, uh, of states who, you know, traditionally were called Eastern European, but now prefer to call themselves Central European, uh, because Eastern European comes with that stigma that, oh, you're poor, you're socialist, you're stupid, uh, you're just a bunch of plumbers and cheap laborers, because this is how they're, they're portrayed, not, not just perceived, it's how they're portrayed in the Western European media and the uh, Anglophone media. And this is a, an, a block within the European Union. All four of them are EU member states. Um, three, of, three out of four uh, don't have the euro. They have their own sovereign currencies, which gives them a bit more autonomy on uh, uh, fiscal and economic matters, or monetary matters. And it's, I feel, 
the first step in what ideally should become a union of its own. That because of the difference in historical experience, because of the difference in material circumstances, there is a difference in needs in these countries and expectations and aspirations that a lot of the EU's dominant frameworks or set policies are designed to preserve the comfort of the original members. So Benelux, so Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, uh, Germany, specifically West Germany, because East Germany is treated the same way, de-industrialized, uh, hollowed out of its, its youth. And, uh, you know, then you, after you've hollowed out the country uh, and what do you do? You throw them a few pennies, say, oh, paint up your old town. It's very cute and picturesque. Maybe you'll get a few tourists once in a while. But that's not a long-term uh, uh, solution. And then they, they complain that, oh, why are these regions full of extremists? Why are they full of, uh, of these uh, strange political parties that make us uncomfortable? Well, they arise from the material economic circumstances, social circumstances that have been engendered. So in, in the future, we might see a second union and either within the EU or in parallel to it, on the lines of what used to be called the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. From the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, there was, uh, in fact, for uh, many centuries, it was the biggest, richest, most peaceful, most modern country in Europe. It's not one that's talked about anymore, but there was a time when Poland and Lithuania formed a noble republic, which was very unique for its time. So it was like yep. their Mahajanpad. Uh, to use uh, our own uh, ancient uh, history of republics. So they had a Mahajanpad in Europe. And it was a very uh, democratic, uh, open, egalitarian society. It was one of the few uh, countries at the time which did not actively persecute its uh, Jews. It didn't actively persecute its Roma community, for example. Uh, and that's why there were so many Jews and Roma in Eastern Europe uh, because why weren't there any in Western Europe? Most of them had been killed in medieval times uh, for not being Christian or not being white enough. Now, perhaps uh, the Visegrad group over time can become the successor, the spiritual successor to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, wherein it can create a set of values that suit its historical context, uh, that suit the people in that, that country and their in, in that region and their aspirations, rather than just being dragged along unwillingly with the neoliberal consensus of Western Europe, who are already wealthy and can engage in aesthetic performative politics without any meaning, without any upliftment, without any growth. So I think there's a lot of potential there. To add on that, even when we see Indo-European cooperation, because even I have watched, vouched for it, and even uh, we are working on a very interesting report, my organization, Global Law Assembly, we are coming up with proposing what should be an Indo-Pacific approach for India. And we have said that it should be two things. First, India-centric. I mean, China to hai civilizational level. It's such an obvious thing. Obsessing about uh, around Xi Jinping and the People's Liberation Army is just like, pandering through Taiwan and Taiwan doesn't disclose what it wishes to do. So it's I'm not getting on China much. When we will become stronger, of course, we can deal with 
Taiwan and China whatsoever. I don't care about Taiwan and China. That if there care. is a there. Taiwan by then. Yeah, I mean, of course, it could be a case. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, I, I have been quite surprised by the way the Taiwanese think about it because um, they are like, why don't you change your position on borders? Why don't you change your position on South China Sea? You have the exact same position as the Chinese. So you don't have a similar, different position. Then you don't have a new strategic consensus. You might be good on semiconductors and all of that stuff. But again, uh, it's a bargain for that same neoliberal thing. And that's where even with Europe, this problem comes in. That the European Union came up, came up with its Indo-Pacific strategy. And the problem which I found personally was, personally at a professional level, nobody is personally affected by it, uh, personally academically speaking or policy-wise speaking, is that uh, the, the, the approach was very much less India-centric. It was more confused than before. There were some good brownie points. I'm not saying there was nothing, but I was kind of uh, surprised by their approach. Maybe it is that uh, I think post Merkel, we will see some changes in their Indo-Pacific strategy. And that's why I asked the question on Visay Grand Group. Before uh, we go ahead, I have to share one interesting thing since we are talking about Europe. And I think viewers must watch this. And I found this quite interesting. Even you will find it interesting. So just give me a second. Um, so, sure. uh, can, yeah, can you see this? <laughs> so, shout out to Paolo Garbaldo from Twitter. Uh, I did it, Paolo Garbaudo, P-A-O-L-O-G-E-R-B-A-U-D-O. Thank you for this uh, interesting map. Uh, really grateful. So if you see, if you can see, even for viewers, I can try to make it visible. One of the most in, amazing things is that in Hungary, only Budapest is the region which says that Europe is a, is a primary attachment. But if you see in the Visegrad group, I think maybe a little bit, I think, I don't know if this area is in Germany or which country. But uh, that's see, uh, that yeah. Moravia in, in the Czech Republic. Okay, Czech Republic. Right. Or, or wait, okay. no, no, it's, uh, it's uh, Silesia. So it's uh, Czech uh, Silesia. So just Czech south Slavia. of uh, Krakow uh, in the coal and Katowice, uh, the coal belt. Okay, so if you see the rest of the map, you'll find that they care more about their country than Europe itself or, you know, regional and regional issues. But I think yes. much interesting estimations can be made from here, even when we see France and when we see Portugal and so forth. So I mean, I think, this is very interesting. Yeah. Can, can you keep it on yeah. it? Uh, I'd love to go through it with you uh, because sure. uh, if we look at the regions uh, uh, which are in uh, in orange. So that's yeah. generally either regions that are, have separatist tend tendencies. So for example, in, in Spain, so Catalonia or the Basque country or Galicia, where they have a distinct culture or in, uh, in Germany, Bavaria which, or, and Saxony, which have a distinct culture and define themselves in opposition to the core of, uh, of the country and the capital. Uh, in yeah. France, uh, it's the same. Uh, so Brittany, so in the uh, far northwest, and then uh, the French Basque region uh, in uh, uh, the southwest. Uh, Italy, the northeast, is the wealthiest part of the country uh, and has its own uh, distinctive uh, culture and likes to... Uh, it's called the nationalism of the rich when uh, certain uh, regions 
And you might notice this happening in India as well over the next few decades. Certain regions at the edge, edge of the country, if they achieve better economic status than the capital or than the rural areas, they make that into a great virtue and say, oh, the rest of the country are poor peasants and they're tying us down. If we were independent, <laughs> uh, you know, our, our magical you know, uh, province or state would be so much better off without these losers. Uh, which, you know, okay. uh, I've already seen some Dravidian activists and Khalistani activists say this. Uh, Ironically, even I find it when uh, people from Bengal, Uttar Pradesh, and the rest of the North India fight. So, of course, not, not getting along. Although Bengal is not, not in a good state. Maybe they, that's what exceptionalism is. But I get your point. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah, you were yes. saying something on Europe. You can complete it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it's very interesting to see. Uh, what people identify with primarily. So th they identify with their country, they identify with their region. They don't yet identify with the European Union because the European Union is still a very abstract concept. Uh, you know, it doesn't affect people in their day-to-day -day lives and they don't feel fully uh, in control or in ownership or invested or you know, participative in it, unfortunately. Uh, and this is a reflection of that. So you were saying that in all of the European Union, it's only in Budapest that yeah. European is seen as their primary identity. Yeah. I, I In the chat, I've just shared with you the link so that if you don't get a Zoomed link, you can just check it otherwise. But uh, uh, it's only Budapest. And uh, uh, yeah, it's only Budapest because there's a red dot where it mm -hmm. states that only region with Europe is a primary attachment. Yes. Uh, uh, nowhere else is, anything is there. Um, I think they gave other examples, but they are not related to the red part in legend as mentioned. So I think that's the thing. So ironically, ironically, somebody commented on Twitter. I mean, you can see the comment. So let me feature yes. the comment. <laughs> ironically, <laughs> so, <laughs> no comments, brother. You can see the comment yourself. So mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, so nice. I think. Um, if we had a good tour, you can maybe look at it afterwards and let's get to the next part of the discussion. It's really getting interesting. I mean, uh, we violated the one hour 30 minute rule, <laughs> but fine, I don't care. Um, so, uh, um, violations are okay if they, are ma in, they make sense. Now, um, yeah, the, the one like, like yeah. in geopolitics, the ones who make the rules, like the rules based yeah. uh, international order, are the ones who are allowed to break them. Exactly the point. <laughs> exactly the point. So now I have an interesting question since we talk about European cooperation and uh, I, I hope more from European cooperation, maybe French cooperation rather than American and Anglo's first square co cooperation because so uh, one ex interesting example from culture which I like to give and thanks to Barkevs for that Kiran and uh, he gave an example and it's very apparent actually. So there's a discussion going on, like the same language debate, which often happens, right? Uh, but it's not the separatism debate anymore, you know, the Dravidians and all of that, because now even the South Indians are saying, yes, you know, let's have English and get the job and all of that stuff. I'm not getting on the political stuff. So I'm not even going to discuss the politics. In fact, as a part of IPMF and industry, we're going to have an episode uh, this Sunday with a very interesting panel on languages. I thank Dr. Balram Shukla for... Uh, coming in the last discussion on Hindi Divas, he actually discussed how Hindi became, not Hindi as a language, not uh, language sciences, but Hindi, uh, when it comes to Hindi speakers, became very 
you know it ha- it actually assumed the colonizing tendency of the english speaking elite so that is how the regional languages in india were affected and and this is a very big reason why urdu gets its own way because urdu and farsi have a lot of connection like 75% of their vocabulary comes from sanskrit but hindi despite having a lot of great connection with sanskrit tatsam and tatbhav it's still not able to gain that ironically hindi does have a lot of connection with regional languages so wakib points out a very interesting thing that you can have for the sake of your job or whatever english as a language of your medium uh, when it comes to speaking writing blah blah, blah. and as a, yes as a communication medium yes exactly uh, it's like saying having an official language at the un who cares <laughs> like two working languages we have there french and english so yeah but when it comes to knowledge and cultural intelligence this is something which even i have discussed with dr balram shukla very extensively that uh, the reason i had a good english was because of hindi and my love in hindi i loved hindi so much and i still write poems i still am a hindi poet so hindi was the reason my cultural intelligence grew and i understood english in a different way altogether not the anglical way but a indian way. that's why i play my words according that is something which many many indians may agree to because even when you speak english the way people roll out their words the people make the sentences it's a very diverse thing altogether in the world it's not the same it's not the american neoliberal way anymore east i met eastern europeans uh, virtually mostly and i've seen that uh, uh, their way of interaction is quite interesting uh, i mean people can watch the interview i had with uh, kate and taras i can understand so so what he says specifically is that the gdp the gdp contribution of english as a language is going down because of of course what america america is going to be a power particularly it's going to be very severely affected now the problem with the americans is is that we have seen the afghanistan example i may agree with only one one minute thing that there was some air which was there for the afghan people to protect their culture the problem was that the security and strategic alignments were not clear otherwise you are spending 2 trillion dollars and then you don't have a situation in afghanistan which makes sense wherein uh, wherein everybody knew that uh, and i think it was since obama since 2015 there was a graph as showed by alexey i don't remember that uh, when the poppy cultivation for drugs that actually was at a high level obama was thinking to exit from afghanistan let the us exit from afghanistan so i i sympathize with the afghan people and i'm putting that point here that your nativity and culture is something which maybe to some extent neoliberalism gave you that voice but it doesn't mean that it will be able to because uh, the problem is and that's something which have seen the asian cultures is that uh, you can talk about korea and japan uh, but again they have their own uniqueness is that they are kind of trying to fit in the neoliberal frame of things as you as you said uh, everything will be hunky dory assumption that you know what this is an this is an assumed imagined legendary cooperation now i agree with you that i should not have used the word incompetency but uh, the, the 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 reason i i was i said was and i'm not saying in a pessimistic way or i I'm, i'm very hopeful about indian actors and indian diplomacy it's just that uh, i do not find much optimism when it comes to cooperation with the us i'm various causes not new york times is not the reason why i am disappointed they who nobody cares for them <laughs> they are they are um, they are a, they are a company of their own value i'm not caring about them what matters yeah, the, to us is new york times is like pravda in in the soviet yeah. union you read it just to you know hold up a mirror to what the elite are thinking 
but you know, yeah. there, there's no actual truth <laughs> uh, <laughs> to be found true. in Pravda or in the New York Times. And uh, the, mutually, yeah. there was an understanding on both sides about that. That it was just a way to feel the pulse of the uh, the policymakers in either country. Right. So as this GDP contribution is going down, practically what's going to happen is that other countries will gain their leverage. Ironically, everybody who's... There's a person called Verdastillo. People can follow them on Twitter on language issues. He says that everybody, even Google, is appropriating and you know getting information on how English language is dominant. But nobody has accurate data on how Mandarin is dominant also when it comes to SEO, DNNSC, all of these things which when you form a website, post a website, where you have the URL and all of that, nobody cares to even study the Mandarin data. How, how many Chinese have it? How many Japanese have it? So that is something which is concerning because nobody thinks about that. Imagine, imagine a day where Indians have this that, you know what, with Hindi and Sanskrit, let's have our own approaches in these things and develop a technologic protocol which is actually much stronger and it leads to things. So why am I pointing out cultural? Is that, yes, uh, whatever the political momentum in 2014 was, it gave you the strength to go ahead. Many people agree with that. And that is good. But it's not about that 2014 moment anyways, because the point is that every civilization is like a machine in its own way. I'm not talking about artificial and materialism. I'm talking about the whole construct itself. Uh, I remember a statement in India, that, India that is Bharat by J.S.I. Deepak about Shama Prasad Mukherjee, where Shama Prasad Mukherjee says that, you know what, uh, India is a federal civilization. It is Sai Deepak's line, but he relates it from Shama Prasad Mukherjee and uh, maybe also Deen Dayal Upadhyay, I don't remember exactly, but he relates from the Hindu Masada and all of those that India is a federal civilization, truly federal civilization, whatever federalism it is, whether the Mahajanapadas or anything, it can actually stay there. So when you have it, what is generally required, and this is something I'm putting as a caveat before you respond to this, people do not understand that Merely by sharing memes of a temple and comparing it with Mona Lisa and saying, you know, what Tanjabur mein architecture acha tha, makes you something bigger. Because you need to know both. And then you need to say why Bharati has done. Because even that person who actually created, you know, was contributory to the temple, that person must have done some parishram, right? You are not even doing the parishram, you're just being a social media influencer. That, that doesn't help. And that I pointed out because it's a long time, fairly. Because politically, yes, you are gaining your autonomy. But when it comes to contribution, and I'm not being very obsessive around, or you know, I'm, I'm not going to bash, but I'm only going to say that this particular understanding is not there, which is also a big reason why we pander a lot to the Anglosphere. Because we think that since it's English connect, and I'm not saying language, it's also the diaspora, blah, blah, blah. We do not, and that's why I, I sometimes say, either we won't, don't want to, or either we are just tired of it. We just stop even thinking about what better can we do with other countries in Europe, what better can we do with Southeast Asia. And this is something which concerns me. And it's not someone in a negative sense. I think people who are private actors in their own right are actually trying to do. I'm, and I'm not talking about those people who make a narrative about Indic issues every day. I'm not that person. Industing does not do that. The objective of Industing is to basically, like I remember a fanboy of Industing stating, uh, Amrita, in a discussion, he told me that because of Ruchir and because of Vakibs, now I'm actually thinking that, you know what, reconciliation for Indian civilization is not the way. You have to think differently. So you can consider uh, Amrita to be kind of a fanboy of yours as well. <laughs> so uh, That's nice Amrita sees this. Yeah, he said that. And uh, I like, I, I agreed with him. 
uh, that that's the whole thing it is i have been also figuring out that indo european cooperation is what it's uh, i'm that and i think if you remember i'll not mention the handle there was a little of a debate which started that why asian leadership should be asserted by india culturally and spiritually and so on and not indian or hindu first i'm not getting on identity i'm getting on the practical aspect of what asia represents so of course you understand the question but i'm only pointing out this because i think you can very interestingly answer this question so you can answer on the asian aspects not on identity but consciousness because dharmic consciousness is related to our strategic affairs we never realize it and uh, that is something which people forget we just think it's all about identity it's not true it's also consciousness and consciousness builds cultural intelligence which builds on strategic approach so i think it's pretty simple to so i think now you can elaborate and yeah sorry for being long that's all right so i i feel that uh, in order to understand many behaviors of not just the elite but of the masses and you know that could be you know the elite uh, uh looking for emotional or cultural validation uh abroad or you know the masses you know sharing memes saying that oh you know uh, x indian achievement is better than y a western uh, achievement you should simply take pride right? that oh, objectively this is our achievement and this is why we should be uh, proud of it without needing to compare it to the west because then you are putting the west on a pedestal and again falling into that same trap that we have to show that we're equals and then there's some reward for that but uh, that's not how a sovereign uh, country or people should be behaving and the reason we behave this way is because of a historical lack of sovereignty that because indians were stripped of agency in running their own affairs for so long they've forgotten what it w- was like you know and you know if we look at it, so it's not that indian sovereignty ended you know in 1092 when uh, the invaders from uh, central asia succeeded the turkic invaders but uh, you know there were attempts so whenever there was a restoration of indian sovereignty be that through vijayanagar be that through uh, shivaji maharaj uh, declaring hindavi swarajya you know it was not just about asserting political sovereignty but about restoring the uh traditional and uh, uh indigenous knowledge systems uh and that you know because we haven't enjoyed agency through the state for a long time and the state has not patronized these knowledge systems we're reduced to playing this catch up game which is not a, a game it's you know it's a trap that you know we're running very hard to prove that we're equals but staying in the same place at some point you have to realize that this is a waste of energy and what is the way forward it's to look at the example of successful countries that we you know people keep saying oh india is so big so you know diverse you know it's this it's that you know and that's a fundamental flaw which means it can never progress there's a we have a neighbor that is also you know as big as us population wise it's as diverse as us you know geographically uh, it even has you know it's not that they don't have ethnic uh, or linguistic uh diversity they just enforced you know uh unification through a national language uh as a means of national uh, uh integration and unity so you know uh, china has shown uh one model vietnam has shown another model singapore as a city state has shown a certain model uh which uh, i mean can't be emulated by india as uh 
a large state, unfortunately, but could be uh, emulated on a smaller scale if we uh, look at India's administrative subdivisions through uh, district levels or Janpad levels. But uh, since you mentioned uh, Asian values and uh, dharmic values, let me define uh, the two. So, you know, what do Asian values mean? Because Asian values have a very clear uh, meaning in international relations. So this is uh, from a research paper from 2004, uh, and it says, the Asian values theory, in brief, makes four claims. First, human rights are not universal, and neither can they be globalized. They emerge differently uh, according to the context of particular social, economic, cultural, and political conditions. Second, Asian societies are not centered on the individual, but on the family. The nation is like a big family. It supposedly comes naturally for Asians to let the combined interests of the family and the nation go before the interests of each individual. Third, Asian societies rank social and economic rights over individual political rights. And then fourth and finally, the right of a nation to self-determination includes a government's domestic jurisdiction over human rights. This implies that other nations should not interfere with the internal affairs of a state, including its human rights policy. So what Asian values means is basically a pushback against the interventionism and veto power of uh, Western states on Asian countries. Traditionally, Asian countries saw themselves as having superior civilizations, superior values uh, compared to Western barbarians. And this is a institutionalization of that mentality so as to immunize and insulate them from the geopolitical, cultural, economic, social influences of these hegemonic powers. Now, uh, they'll say that, oh, what do Asian values have to do with uh, with India, or with uh, with uh, uh, dharma, uh, dharmic or Hindu values? Well, where do you think this understanding came from? Uh, it didn't uh, occur in a, val uh, a vacuum. There are two great schools of political thought and philosophy from ancient times in uh, in Asia, and one is the the Indian uh, school, and one is the uh, Chinese uh, school. Together, they met in Southeast Asia, in countries like Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, uh, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia. And today, these are the countries that are at the core of ASEAN. And this is traditionally the, what was the Indosphere. And if we are to dream big as uh, India, as an Indian civilization, or as a dharmic power, as a Hindu power, it should be to take back our role as the patron, as the protector, as the uh, dominant naval, commercial, military power in this whole region. That you know, even this term uh, South Asia, beyond you know the CIA, you know, Anglosphere definition of South Asia, which was just uh, formed to give legitimacy to uh, to Pakistan and uh, delegitimize the use of the word Indology or um, uh, Indian subcontinent. 
what did south india uh, south asia mean before that or in other countries that were unaffected so if you look at uh, the eastern bloc if you look at uh, textbooks from the soviet union or from uh, east germany at the same time that uh, the anglosphere was embracing south asian studies and south asian this and in uh, indo pak uh, hyphenation south asia in other countries in non english speaking countries means everything south of tibet which is divided into what was called near india and far india near india being the indian subcontinent far india being southeast asia that is the true south asia and it's essentially the old indosphere from you know a millennia ago, from uh, centuries ago through uh, trade through naval expeditions of the cholas for example uh, and through uh, sanskritized hindu kingdoms uh, in uh, southeast asia such as ayutthaya such as uh, champa such as uh, uh, amravati uh, in uh, which is now in vietnam pandurang in in vietnam uh, and uh, and in cambodia and laos as well so this is important to recognize that this you know is what was taken from us that these were countries and still are countries that look at india as a, their spiritual mother but unfortunately because of india's lack of power because of lack of economic and geopolitical power and lack of political imagination uh, there are ministers today foreign ministers in this region who say yes you know india is like our mother you know it contributed it taught us you know our language and our culture but china is our father because he gives us pocket money and and that's the difference between soft power and hard power and at the moment hard power is winning now to make a final point and and I'll end with this no i talked about you know what asian values means today but yeah uh, what is the origin of that conception let's talk about the arthashastra by uh, kautilya this is a quote from him on sovereignty and power so the king the minister the country the fort the treasury the army and the friend are the elements of sovereignty the acquisition and security of rights are dependent upon peace and industry efforts to achieve the results of works undertaken is industry absence of disturbance to the enjoyment of the results achieved from these works is peace strength is power and happiness is the end strength is of three kinds power of deliberation is intellectual strength the possession of a prosperous treasury and a strong army is the strength of sovereignty and martial power is physical strength the end is also of three kinds that which is attainable by deliberation is the end is the goal of deliberation that which is attainable by the strength of sovereignty is the end of sovereignty it is the goal of sovereignty and that which is to be secured by perseverance is the end or the goal of martial power the possession of power and happiness in a greater degree makes a king superior to another in a less degree inferior and in an equal degree equal hence a king shall always endeavor to augment his own power and elevate his happiness a king who is equal to his enemy in the matter of his sovereign elements shall in virtue of his own righteous conduct 
or with the help of those who are hostile or conspiring against his enemy, endeavor to throw his enemy's power into the shade. This understanding lives across Asia in modern political philosophies and state institutions as well. It reflects both Indian and Chinese thinkers on sovereignty and, and statecraft. And it's just in India, in its homeland, where we have not yet embraced these values. It doesn't matter what you call them. You can call it realism. You could call it Asian values. You can call it cynicism. You can call it Hindu values. You can call it Cortillian state. Call it whatever you want. A tool that helps you achieve your goals is a good tool. A tool that prevents you, you know, from reaching your goals is an obstacle. It's a bad tool and should be discarded. That's what matters. So this is what I mean by developing strategic thinking, that it's not enough to be satisfied with where we are. Where we are is just, you know, we're not here because we set ourselves out to this goal and achieved it. We're here because our position in the world is, has been decided for us by other powers. And we were just so grateful that, oh, yes, you know, yay, oh, this is fantastic. Let's preserve this at all costs. But other countries can see that. They see that we're a soft state. And a soft state will, if you're seen as a soft state, you'll be treated as a soft state. If you're treated as a soft state, you'll be seen as a soft state. And there's a vicious cycle there. So that's, uh, that cycle has to be broken. You have to assert uh, sovereignty to assert power, and you have to dream big. You have to show imagination. You need what uh, Thomas Sankara of Burkina Faso said. You need the courage to invent the future. You need to set yourself long-term goals for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, that by 2100, this is where we want to see India be. This is its position in the world. This is internally you know, how we want to see society and the economy uh, and and culture. And now that we've set this goal, these are the milestones, these are the steps, and these are the tools that we'll be using to reach these goals. This is what China has done. And we can learn from that. You can learn even from your adversary. You can use the tools of your adversary just because uh, they touch the tool doesn't sully it forever and now you can't use it. And similarly, if we invented you know, Asian values as Hindu values, as uh, Cortillian or Chanakian values, and it's been used by other countries, it's been used by Indonesia, it's been used by Malaysia, it's been used by Singapore. That doesn't make the tool less worthy. It shows that it's effective and it's our own legacy. Reclaim it and start using it instead of complaining that, oh, you know, uh, this belongs to others because they changed the name. But who cares about the name? What matters is results. Yeah. So I think uh, we have a constraint of time, so I completely agree with what you said. Um, one last question, and before that, a little bit of addition in one minute. And last question is also very brief. One, la one addition to this is that uh, evolution is a need of a civilization. So it actually is something which is very all comprehensive, and it happens in every area. Not just international relations, not just law, which we talk about a lot, and, and not just technology. I had a podcast on AI now, and I wrote a monograph, an Indic approach to AI. I said a similar question, and I made a funny thing that, okay, fine, you can't expect a Chanakya in technology, but where is the X in technology for India? And where is uh, somebody after Vivekananda? We, you just can't stop there and, you know, uh, chime around and say, you know what, there's, this is this form of exceptionalism. That's the same mercantilist mentality. I'm using this word very carefully, which the Anglosphere has. 
and one funny instance in then the question is that all of these uh, actors in hollywood who actually you know are becoming woke these days or partial or pseudo woke or, or whatever uh, hiding woke they're not woke but liberal if they're so liberal and they're so much about struggle is progress you know what just leave the past and go away why is it that they become actors and uh, get starring roles in films which are actually based on soviet union world war 1 Congress of Vienna. Why, 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 why loving so much to the past? And then they bring up the argument that you know what Churchill said. जो 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 भूतकाल को देखते हैं वो वर्तमान और वर्तमान और भविष्य को नहीं देखते. So please don't tell me that your past doesn't matter. I think the problem is they just uh, people don't realize that decoloniality is a tool. It is not a world itself. And this is something which even India, that is Bharat, is something which people will read when they realize. I end there. So my last question here is very simple. somebody was saying that russia became an observer uh, recently in the nam summit where minakshi lekhi the mos foreign affairs external affairs has gone interestingly i like that initiative because nam was all about countering us and soviet at the first place we all know that soviet is gone russia is an observer iran is obviously a very important player for india and iran will not be hostile towards iran this like theek hai chal raha hai they are trying to have their own equilibrium with india and china anyways uh, my concern is uh i don't see it as nam 2.0 for minister jashankar or india i see it multi alignment 2.0 because multi alignment started with bachpai or narsimha rao in their own way even if it was neoliberal even if it has flaws even if uh, american india incorporation and all of that thing happened the relationship and all but there is still multi alignment possible and by the way i remember thanks to krishnan for that the person who was imp- responsible for making the ties between reagan and rajiv gandhi possible was none other than minister s jashankar he was an ifs officer at that time and he actually made the indo american relations strong so i understand the uh, uh, that uh, that stuff but fine my question is will it be nam 2.0 or will it be multi alignment 2.0 for india considering what you have proposed for the pentagram pentagram i'm joking it can be octagram i could have said add uh, saudi and Sing- uh, singapore so heptagram but theek maan lete hain ki hai what do you think of it and that's where we can end fast because i think it's very getting long <laughs> I think uh, it's quite clear that uh, that India values its strategic autonomy, not just because of some nostalgia for the good old days of Nam. I think uh, there's actually quite a lot of cynicism around Nam among Indian foreign policy makers. So within the Ministry of External Affairs, uh, they see that it's not fit for purpose anymore, and uh, the onus is actually now on Nam to reinvent itself. once it has a purpose then it's possible that india will find it attractive again but at the moment what india is pursuing is uh, robust bilateral relations with multiple actors now i don't see a future where india becomes a uh, client state or ally of the us because both countries see each other as very unreliable so the us doesn't trust india because you know what do they expect they expect loyalty they expect effectiveness uh the indian state doesn't have the capacity to push forth its own interests how will it deliver us interests so you know that's why the us prefers to work with autocracies with gulf monarchies with latin american dictatorships because they get the job done you know they don't care about dissent you know uh, the, uh, the pentagon wants something and they deliver Uh, now 
there's but there's a difference between becoming a client state or an ally of the US which India will not become because uh, they don't see us as reliable and we have seen that they're not reliable and they're not you know they're not even reliable as a arms supplier let alone as a, a strategic partner uh, but the the other risk is becoming a semi colony now a client state or a vassal loses autonomy on foreign policy making but it has sovereignty internally to do whatever it wants and has impunity with the you know with the blessing of uh, washington dc it can you know do whatever it wants to its citizens india is in the opposite situation as a semi colony you know we ostensibly have sovereignty uh, in uh, foreign policy making but internally we try to pass our own laws try to enforce our own laws and uh, then you'll have some member of parliament you know from you know a backbencher mp in the house of commons uh, talking about it uh, in british parliament you'll have uh, the city council in seattle debating indian laws and their legitimacy uh, and their enforcement or even not even indian laws uh, supreme court judgments like the nrc nrc is not an executive policy it's uh, being enforced at the direction of the courts uh and some you know essentially jumped up uh, panchayat or zila parishad in uh, in the us thinks that it's their right uh, to interfere and put a veto on it that oh how dare you enact this law or enforce this uh, this uh, supreme court order you know the uh the city council of seattle has spoken you know your your masters have spoken and we know better now that's the risk this mental and cultural colonization this uh semi colonization or neo colonialism and i'll end with this and this is you know from the leading theoretician of the realist school of international relations a very simple line memorize it you know write it down you know and frame it in the ministry of external affairs the individual state has the right to give itself any constitution it pleases to enact whatever laws it wishes regardless of their effect upon its own citizens and to choose any system of administration the end the debate ends there if you're a sovereign state you can do this if you can't no and we're seeing that now that's an issue because that means we have given too much power over our system to external forces who don't have our interests at heart and are manipulating us cynically through the media through uh their uh corporations through their state into submissiveness and keeping us in our place as a large uh, source of cheap labor and a market for finished goods financial products social problems and excess population that's all exactly the point and that's where the problem comes in i can have a discussion at but not right now but to conclude only two lines to say and then it ends that i was going to discuss wokeism but let's not do it uh, we all know it what it is <laughs> but the major point which i was going to ask was this only and you summarized it very beautifully that the problem with that is you create a conflict economy in the anglo saxon world that comes in india that actually contributes to it and i will not refer a particular statement but fine i'll i'll tell you after this session uh, uh what ironically it is that you use conflict economy like the past governments in a way to get your things done maybe there are i'm not saying the government is deliberately but maybe the politicians think like that or maybe the other stakeholders think like that and that is a problem 
maybe it is good for elections maybe it is good for other things i don't know but it is not good for civilization considerations because then it's not going to productively help and then it's again the same thing that politics is the religion and not the other way around i'm not talking about basically the jeffersonian way of secularism i'm only talking about the practical problem that we have in india that it is also deeply colonial at the end of the day you just you just have the same colonial mentality and you just uh, you just create conflict economy you don't have a development you can't have ideally any of them you can't have conflict completely you can't have development there will be some bit of it but development should increase now you should have more manufacturing sector so that's something which you is concerned but still fine i think we can do it let's see how we do it. and on a very uh, sustainable note master so those who go through this one hour 52 minutes discussion congratulations it's a master thesis for you to enjoy <laughs> i'm just joking around so here we end with the first dialogue of the indo pacific mobility forum and of course the 14th episode of indus think uh, we are going to discuss about india's role and india's uh, you know how india has not ratified the 1951 refugee convention with uh, kartike and one very special guest from jindalpur law school so do await a discussion this sunday as we are going to discuss about india's refugee approach and what can be a dharmic approach to international refugee law which india can adopt so with this we terminate this discussion thank you so much richard i think we had a really long discussion but maybe we can have more in future but i think that's where yes, the key is but, yeah. yeah thanks thanks again for inviting me thanks for the great conversation and questions and topics uh, yeah i had a great time and uh, i hope this ignites people's minds that uh, let this be a basis to come up with your own uh, ideas and run with them but uh, like we said uh, you know a, a good tool is one that helps us achieve our goals a uh, bad tool is one that uh, doesn't so uh, it doesn't matter what the tool is called it doesn't matter who made the the tool doesn't matter who used the tool if it's useful to us embrace it embrace the reputation embrace the tools yeah with this we end the session thank you so much for watching and namo bhai